Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're taking a close look at recently released research that suggests elective inductions at 39 weeks could reduce the cesarean rate. What does this mean for pregnant people in maternity care? Does Mother Nature really have it all wrong? Is there a better way of reducing the cesarean rate? Sharon Muja helps make sense of all these questions and more. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Aura Organic, a company that creates ridiculously nutritious and delicious supplements from real plant-based foods that are better for people and the planet. Try Aura Organic with 15% off your first order using the code BIRTHFUL at www.ora.organic. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Casper. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash birthful and using birthful at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you so, so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, then please do take a few minutes to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook or on Google. Just tell your friends, whatever, share it. It really does help. Quick request, I am going to be doing a bunch of different stories this year, not just birth stories. So if you're up for sharing your postpartum story or your breastfeeding story, or if your significant other would like to share their experiences as the partner, then please go to birthful.com and send me a message about it. I cannot wait to hear and share your story with the whole world and, and to listen to what you experienced. All right. In today's episode, we're going to really flex our birth geek muscles by taking a close look at a recently research, released research trial abstract called the ARRIVE trial study, where ARRIVE roughly stands for a randomized trial of induction versus expectant management. Now, even though the full study is not yet available, only the abstract. And even though there are, there have been several statements warning against changing labor management practices based on the information released, the results are so surprising and their implications so radical in potentially upending so much of what we hold to be true of how labor should start that I feel it's incredibly important for any pregnant person to have this information. So consider this a heads up, if you will, in case it's suggested that you have an elective induction at 39 weeks. You know that the whole information is not out there. And at the beginning of, of this episode, we do have to talk about the actual numbers presented in the study, and that may hurt your head a little. I know I did mine, but we still Step away from the numbers soon thereafter. So hang in there. Don't let that put, put you off. Oh, and at the end, we compare the results of this trial with the evidence on doulas. And the results may also surprise you and feel very refreshing. All right, so let's start this thing. To help me untangle all the information and understand what we really are looking at here, I've enlisted the gracious help and support of the always amazing Sharon Muja. Sharon Muja is a birth doula and a birth doula trainer, as well as a childbirth educator and childbirth education trainer. She's a fellow of the Academy of Certified Childbirth Educators, and she also runs the Lamaz International Science and Sensibility blog, along with the Dona International blog. 
In fact, it was pieces that she did recently for both those blogs that made me ask her to come here on the show and talk about this ARRIVE trial. So, Sharon, welcome. It's always so lovely to have you here. Thanks, Adriana. I'm just delighted to be here with you. Yay. So, okay. There is so much to this, and it's hard to even figure out how to approach it. I am so happy that you are here to help me understand this, because it's it hurts my brain. <laughs> oh, my God. Can we first, can you tell us about this study? What is the ARRIVE study? Right. So the ARRIVE study or the ARRIVE trial uh, was released in abstract form uh, recently at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine uh, Conference or something along those lines, annual meeting, I think it was. And the only part that was released was the abstract, which is um, like a summary or a, an overview of, of, of the actual study, but it doesn't go into great detail. This has been long awaited. Uh, everybody has known that the research was being conducted and just waiting for it to get to the publication point. The, the study looked at over 6,000 pregnant people who were all first-time parents with a uh, head-down baby, uh, ideally low risk, that they already did not have any um, indicators or they were not declared high risk. At 38 weeks, they were randomized into two pools, one pool that would be in undergo induction at 39 weeks and one pool that would be the expectant management group who would remain untouched until 40 weeks, uh, five days, I think it was. And of course, the untouched group could go into labor on their own spontaneously before 40 weeks, five days, at which point they were offered induction and they really look at what happened after 40 weeks, five days. So they were um, randomized at agreed to participate in the trial and randomized at 38 weeks to be in the um, induction group or the expected management group. Mm. And yep. I want to point out that the, that the ARRIVE trial, the it's an acronym that stands for rand, a randomized trial of induction versus expected management trial, which is what you just explained. And it's basically, do we do induce you at 39 weeks or let you do whatever you're going to do. Now, was it let you do whatever you're going to do until 40 days and five or 40 weeks and five days? And at that point, we induce you or who knows? You know, I'm not sure if they followed that group beyond 40 weeks, five days, but they definitely were hands off until then. So as not, you know, to, for, to wait for spontaneous labor. Mm hmm. And so what were the results of the trial? Yeah. The results of the trial were um, that the people who were in the intervention or the induction group who were induced uh, between 39 weeks uh, and I think it was 39 weeks, three or four days, Four days is the, what I have from yeah, when I'm looking at, yeah. Right, was versus the waiting group 
were, was that the intervention group or the induction group were significantly less likely to deliver by cesarean. 19% of them gave birth by cesarean versus 22% in the um, expectant management group, which while that's only a span of 3% is considered um, statistically significant, meaning that we could expect those results over and over. Yeah. And so this is where all of us are kind of like trying to really pay attention because if this is true, I can see this then going quickly into policy of let's just induce everybody at 39 weeks. Right. Interestingly enough, this uh, abstract hit the press and very shortly after that, some major players in maternal infant health, like ACOG, like um, oh, it's oh ACNM, the midwifery group, have all come out with firm statements saying that they're aware of this trial, but they are not making any recommendations to change uh, protocols until f further evaluation of the study, which again has not been released. And, and that was like a one-two punch, you know? Hey, new study says we should induce people at 39 weeks to lower the cesarean rate. And within 48 hours, some of these organizations were coming out with statements saying, we are not, we are not endorsing this yet mm. at this time. And I think that that's telling. What does it tell? It acknowledges, one, that we don't have a lot of information and it starts to acknowledge that inducing everybody at 39 weeks is a, a complicated web of logistics for many, many people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and enormous repercussions at all different levels, both organizational, individually, between groups, for parents all kinds of things. Um, but I wanted to look at first, if you wouldn't mind, because you did a great job in the Science and Sensibility blog, which is the Lamaze blog, right? I got that right. Correct. <laughs> um, and I will link it in the show notes where um, you you connected with Hensi Gore to unpack, really look at the, the, the little information that we have from the, from the abstract, but to sort of dig down deep into, from the numbers that we have, how reliable are these numbers? So I do want to get that, get to that, but we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Whether you're a busy professional, parent on the go, or just looking for high quality supplements, did you know that Aura Organic has the cleanest and most delicious nutritional products available? At Aura Organic, they don't include ingredients they don't believe are necessary, and that's why their products are organic, vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, non-GMO, and don't contain anything artificial. Their unique selection of products includes a plant-based omega-3 spray, an organic and vegan vitamin D tablet, organic probiotic capsules, and much more. I received an organic probiotic powder. Now, I'm not usually one for powdered anything, but 
but I was super pleasantly surprised by the mild and delicious taste of Aura Organics probiotic powder flavored with organic apple and raspberry. It's both subtle and refreshing, and it contains 20 billion probiotics per serving, along with six strains to support digestive health and immune function. An extra fun fact is that this probiotic is also packed with prebiotics, which serve as fuel for probiotics, helping the good bacteria thrive in your gut so your probiotic can get to work. Aura Organic also offers a subscription service that is free to cancel or skip for all their nutritional products, which makes it super convenient to get your supplements right at home. Try Aura Organic with 15% off your first order using the code BIRTHFUL at aura.organic. That's O-R-A dot organic, so no dot com, just aura.organic, and use the code BIRTHFUL to get 15% off your first order. And we are back talking about this ARRIVE trial. Um, so what, yeah. Off the, from the information that we have, what are the the things that uh, you know strike us as mm, we need to look further into, and maybe there are questions that aren't quite answered properly within this trial or the abstract that we have? Right. So, um, Hensi Goward did an amazing job on that science and sensibility post. Um, to, as you say, unpack the information. And I feel like her post was like three or four times longer than all of the information that was actually released in the abstract. So, well, because I mean, she's amazing. <laughs> she is amazing. And, um, and, and she did raise, she did ask, um, you know, what, what were the red flags? And um, one of the red flags was determining, uh, was the population actually low risk? Because uh, one of the the things that they noticed with the people who were waiting in the expectant management group is that they had a higher incidence of being dosed, um, diagnosed with preeclampsia or gestational hypertension, which is high blood pressure and less of the 39 week group, uh, were diagnosed with that. It was 9% for them at 38 weeks. Some of them might have already had that. They, which really then should have knocked them out of the high-risk pool. I mean, excuse me, the low-risk pool. Right, but because... For some reason, yeah, because yeah, they're really not low-risk. But they, but but that wasn't the case. Yeah, and she so, really... I thought it was really neat that she looked into it of, you know, what does, what does the information say of, like, how quickly do you develop preeclampsia or hypertension between 38 weeks and 39 weeks? Right. And traditionally, right. that's not... It doesn't correlate to the numbers that they were reporting. Exactly. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but well, we don't have the entire study. We don't have the answers to these questions. Right. And so it's really hard to make assumptions, um, which I feel like a lot of people jumped jumped to doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I thought was really interesting from what she brought up is that you know, was the population actually at low risk, but also could the control group management have contributed to their excess of risk of cesarean? Can you explain what that means? Yes. So um, there, she discussed, Hensi discussed that 
the the control group, um, which is the group that waited, the expectant management group, probably were very closely monitored. Fetal monitoring, um, probably a little bit more uh, at a higher rate than one might expect at that point in the pregnancy. Because they were part of, a, of this trial. Because they were part of this trial. And what we know about um, things like the non-stress test and, and that they might have been exposed to or undertaken while they were waiting and can, um, electronic fetal monitoring is that it has a very high false positive rate. What that means is that... Um, when it looks like there's a problem, 50 to 80% of the time there actually isn't. But action may be taken because it is believed that there is circumstances that necessitate removing a baby, getting a baby out. And odds are, high odds are that that baby's actually fine. But we don't really know until we do something. And so this control group that you know, probably had a lot of people who got sucked into having something done instead of actually waiting to 40 weeks, five days. Right. And so it kind of leads into that. The uh, Another point that she touched upon is that can this, these results be generalized? Can be, we, would we expect to see the same results if it was done out with the general population and how does that contrast with the information we already have from observational studies which there have been many saying that actually no the having an induction does increase the cesarean rate right another interesting point about this whole this whole study is that they were it was done it was conducted at some pretty major medical institutions with strict protocols. And I have no doubt that the, the protocols applied to an induction, you know, slow and steady, uh, patience, meaning, you know, waiting for each uh, step of the induction to, to, to take effect and to let it unroll. Um, some of the things that ACOG has been putting out in their um, documents about the safe uh, safe prevention of the primary cesarean in 2014 and the um, limits to labor interventions that they put out a year ago this time, you know, talk about we don't call it a failed induction unless um, the person has had ample time uh, with appropriate measures like Pitocin, like with rupturing the membranes, not all at once, but, you know, one in, one after another in a slow process, a slow and what's the word that I want to use? Um, methodical? Controlled. Yeah. Like, yeah, like methodical, right? It's not willy-nilly, we do it different than you. It's, it's everybody's allowing this many hours before the next step, this many hours to dilate. And we often aren't seeing still even now this kind of slow and steady induction. And so the fact that the, 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 the parameters were very, very strict. I don't mean strict like, quickly to cesarean, I mean strictly controlled in what would be... Like followed to a T. Yes, followed to a T. Very, very specific. That's what happened in the study. 
But how applicable is that when we apply it to the 4 million births in the United States? You know, is every facility going to, to, you know, the variance is insane, right? Um, it's just widely varying on what people, you know, receive just in general in facilities. We can eat. We can't eat. <clears throat> I'm allowed in the tub after my water broke. I'm not. You know what I mean? It's there's it would have to be very tightly controlled. Right. So it, be able it to seem, replicate it. Right. Yeah. That's it. It seems like it, it would be hard to replicate. Yes, I, I think it would be near impossible. And so. You know, there's all this information, all these things that we could look at. And again, I will link this in the show notes because Hensi did a long four page deep dive yes. into all the like with a fine tooth comb to all the details that were put out in this little abstract. Um, but regardless of that, let's take it like that's the trial. Let's look at the big picture. What it concluded also was that, you know, the moms that were induced or the, the people that were induced at 39 weeks, they had cesarean rates of 19%. Mm. Does a 19% cesarean rate in healthy first-time moms, is that optimal care? Is that a number that's worth shooting for? You know, that's that's a huge other debate as well because we are still arguing, or I'm not arguing, but professional researchers are arguing about what is the ideal rate for a cesarean uh, for this healthy low-risk population. And that, there's not even firm agreement on that yet. You know, the World Health Organization recommends a cesarean rate of between 10 and 15%. Um, I've heard uh, 19% kicked around. Um, I can tell you that um, the variance in hospital uh, cesarean rates for this healthy low-risk population is also huge, very regionally dependent, very dependent on the type of provider. Is it a midwife? Is it a doctor? Is it an OB? Is it a family practice? Where is it? I mean, so so I don't even know if we can specify. I guess we can, but it's hard to get agreement on it that what is the appropriate rate right what what we do know is we we don't we're doing too many and it's not improving outcomes so we want it to be lower and we want cesareans to be for people who need them not you know not because we've intervened and created a you know um iatrogenic situation where we now have to go in and rescue the parent or the baby. And so that's why I think that this 19% is interesting to me because we do have other research and other numbers that show us, like you were saying, depending on where you give birth and who you give birth with, those numbers can be lower. So, I, and I will link on the show notes, but it reminds me of Dr. Neil Shaw's study on, mm -hmm. on saying that, you know, you actually your biggest predictor for having a cesarean is where you give birth rather than mm -hmm. your health or your history or anything else. Mm -hmm. He says, which door you walk in is the biggest predictor. Which is, you know, quite remarkable. Um, and because those numbers can sway from a very low percent of less than 10 to up in the 60s, um, depending on where you walk in. And then also we do have some good information on how home birth and birth center studies show that their 
percentages for needing a, a cesarean rate, so a transport for cesarean, is closer to like 8 to 13%. Right, right, right. So if they're already doing something that is giving you 8 to 13% with a low-risk population, because that's the only population that, it, it, you know, in, in theory is being able to do like a, a birth center birth. Right. Defined, which they're defined, I mean, immediately they're in the very low, um, low risk pool. Yeah, exactly. And so there are other options out there that can give us a lower rate when considering a low risk population, which is the population that they were looking at in this trial. Now, I want to switch tax a little bit and talk about the implications of inducing all labors at 39 weeks. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. So time to get honest here. How's your current mattress? Do you feel you are getting the support you need for a good night's sleep? Maybe it's time for a Casper mattress. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. And its breathable design also helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Best of all, Casper has affordable prices because it cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. They also provide free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada, so why don't you give it a try? Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash birthful and using birthful at checkout today. That's casper.com slash birthful with the code birthful to get $50 towards select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back talking with Sharon Muja about the Arrive Trial Abstract. And Sharon, in the blog post that you did for, for the Dona Chronicles blog that I will link to in the show notes, um, you had a beautiful, long, and very thoughtful list of things of the implications. Like what would inducing everybody at 39 weeks look like? And what are some of the things that we need to consider? Would you mind talking more about that? You know, as much as we try and put birth in a box that we can describe step by step in nice, neat, tidy packages, you know, things things come in their own way. Um, and, you know, oftentimes due dates can be wrong. Um, did a family member get the early ultrasound that is the best uh, qualifier of when the baby is due? What about family history of um, remaining pregnant longer, you know, some people just kind of carry their babies long. Uh, how about if somebody is completely not ready, has what we call a very low Bishop score, which is a, um, an examination of the cervix to determine the likelihood that an induction would be effective. Uh, what if, um, hospitals have, don't have space, uh, that they can't accommodate, the number of people who will be needing to be induced. What if hospitals did induce all 
people at 39 weeks, how do they have space for somebody who comes in spontaneous labor? Uh, inductions take a long time. Um, uh, you know, a good induction in a, in a non, non-ready, low-bishop-score person could take three days if it's done right, slow and, and carefully. Uh, if every patient had to stay three days, what's that going to do to the cost of birthing? How does that impact people who have families at home? I mean, there's so many things that logistically and, and observationally that we don't really know about, about when babies are born. You know, the the study, the ARRIVE trial showed, though I don't remember if it was statistically significant or not, less babies going, needing to go to the NICU than the ones that uh, came later. But if we start to get babies who weren't really ready and they're having problems breathing, you know, do we have the NICU space for these, you know, relatively full-term, they are full-term babies who need a little extra support? And then what does that do to breastfeeding, that separation? I mean, there's, it's, it's really a tangled web. Yeah, and it makes me think also of, of, you know, the big effort that the March of Dimes has been doing for so many years to try to have inductions not happen at like 37 weeks and how we changed the definition of term to 39 because so many babies were being born early. And then we saw, you know, lots of preemies with problems. And it, it makes me think back to the evidence on due dates and how really for first time moms, you've got, what is it like 50% it it go before 40 weeks or 40 weeks and six days. So almost 41 weeks and half of them after that, like that, this, this trial, by the time that when they stop looking that cutoff was at 40 weeks and five days, which is not even to that number of the average of 40 weeks and six days where, where first-time moms tend to give birth. Right. It, it, it's just simply so fascinating. And it's not just March of Dimes that has had a huge push. AWAN, which is the nursing um, obstetrical neonatal uh, nursing group, also, you know, campaigns, a healthy baby is worth the wait, go the full 40. Um, ACOG came up with a, a hard stop on, I mean, at least in my area of Seattle, Washington, no inductions on first-time parents before 41 weeks unless medically necessary. 41 weeks, no inductions before 41 weeks. 39 weeks, you know, I mean, that's a full two weeks early that might be, you know, on the horizon as a, as a new recommendation, which is a complete 180 Yeah, from what everybody has been saying about, you know, all the, the birth, the brain weight that ha- grows on the baby and lung maturity and these, and we are finding that these, what, what they call, well, they're not even 39 weeks is, but, but like a late preterm, like, you know, 37, 38 weeks. Sometimes those babies show us characteristics of really being early. And if we're off on, if we're inducing at 39 weeks and someone's off a little bit on their due date, you could have a 37 or a 30 week, 38 week baby with problems. So, and that, yeah, no, that's why this is so fascinating. I really wanted to do this show because it 
upends everything so much. There's so many implications to to this. And sort of the whole birth world has been looking at it very eyes waiting and waiting for this to come out because they've been teasing about it for I want to say oh, almost yeah. a year. More than that, I actually um, believe. Yeah. More Yeah, it seems like it's been forever. Now, another thing that I wanted to point out and and it's interesting to me, and I don't know if this is something that is, isn't, you know, like there's a correlation or not, but the fact is this study is coming from the Maternal Fetal right. Medicine Society, who is a group of people that take care of, usually take care of high risk, right? That's their wheelhouse. Their wheelhouse is a lot of high risk, a lot of prevention, a lot of intervention. Right. I mean, how often do they see healthy, low risk people? You know, they're the the upper echelon of solving obstetrical problems when people risk out even of, of, of just straight OB care. So they very rarely are dealing. Yeah, that's interesting too, right? Like, do they do they even get to see normal birth you know normal right and do they see how much a, a, an induction affects the experience of the birthing person and their family and their extended family and yes. how they go up to parent because this is not like this baby is sick we have to do what we need to do and it's gonna upend things and okay right. but this is what we need to make this baby healthy this is we you know baby's completely True. fine absolutely but and let's do this just in case what about the circumstances how do people <laughs> oh god there's so much stuff i still want to say like how do people enter into parenting i mean already labor's exhausting right like you you have a baby and you're pretty tired what if you've just been induced for three days? You're even more exhausted. You're even more behind the eight ball. And during inductions, people are on IV. They're receiving lots and lots of fluid. What impact does that have on breastfeeding? What impact does that have on an artificially inflated baby weight where the baby's going to um, get rid of all of this fluid in the, the first day or so after birth and then look like they've lost tons of weight that you know, may need supplementation or special care. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I just feel like there are, it's so many facets that it's just not straightforward. No, and I do appreciate, like you were saying, that immediately for within 48 hours, ACOG and ACNM, like, they did come out with a statement saying, whoa, 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 <laughs> let's... Let's hold on, and and because we really don't know, because this could upend so much. So then the last part, and I'm like saving the best for last, of what I loved about your article is you sat down and were trying to think outside the box of like what, because the point of this is reducing cesarean rates. So what other things reduce cesarean rates? What did you come up with, Sharon? Well... You know, I have to give a plug for the Lamaze Six Healthy Birth Practices because um, those have been shown to keep cesarean rates lower or, you know, and avoiding unnecessary cesareans like let labor start on its own and um, freedom of movement and um, uh, 
continuous support like baby when ready (laughs) yeah exactly and I think people are less likely to do some of those things um, when they're be when they're when they're being induced Uh, and we know for example that people who have doulas birth doulas with them during labor and birth are more likely to have a spontaneous vaginal birth in fact they're 28 percent less likely to have a cesarean section, according to the most current research. And so that's a really low-tech solution if we want to reduce cesarean rates because uh, doulas can labor with people out of the hospital until it's necessary to be in the hospital. So they're not taking up nursing resources, healthcare provider resources, you know, facility resources. And I think This is also going to have a big impact on doulas because inductions tend to take a really long time. And if a lot of your clients are being induced and a lot of your labors are 30, you know, um, excuse me, or, you know, could be two or three days long. I mean, how how are we able to meet the needs of our clients and still provide a great service when we might also be at the end of our rope of just exhaustion of supporting a family for three days? Mm-hmm. And what would that do to the rates too? Like, right. what would and you what need would, to exactly. charge? Yeah, right, right. And what would you need to charge? Uh, Childcare if you work somewhere else, you know, missing that job. So, and and I think preparing our clients. A lot of people are under the impression that I'm I'm going to be induced. You know, I'm being induced on Monday, and and Monday night they have a baby. But the reality is, being induced on Monday could very well mean you have a baby on Thursday. Yeah, and, and yeah, there's no guarantee, and it could even not work. Right. And that's where right. you end up with a cesarean. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. I have a great episode on the process of induction, and I'll, of course, definitely attach it to the show notes because it goes through that like step-by-step process of giving you information, solid info of what this could look like. Um, but I, and, and I really appreciated that you closed your article doing a sort of apples to apples comparison from what Rebecca Dicker says on evidence-based birth of her discussion of the arrived trial, which I'll also link to, um, of, do you remember how many people needed to be induced at 39 weeks to prevent that one cesarean? Yes. 28 people would need to undergo induction to prevent at 39 weeks to prevent one cesarean at the end of 40 weeks. And then what's that number for doulas or for people who have doulas? I believe it was nine. Right. I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it was nine. I have it in front of me. It was nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not only much better numbers, but better, less costly, less tying up resources. Um, I, I, less, I, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Less emotional and physical wear and tear on the parents and the baby. You know, I'm a huge supporter of research and I want to do, I want to see best practice. I need to see more information on this study because my gut is screaming no. And I'm trying to be open-minded and I'm trying to wait to read the whole study and really see what they say. Um, but it's it, personally to me, and maybe I'm an alarmist, it's scaring me. 
And I wanted to circle back, if I could, for a second, because they recruited people at 38 weeks to participate in this study. These had to be people, all of them, who were open to being induced because they were either end up in the induction group at 39 weeks or the expectant management group who waited till 40 and five, I believe. So, but everybody in that group had to be willing and able to have ended up in the induction at 39 week group. And then my other question then becomes, is that self-selecting in itself? Mm. Yeah. Is it like, right. How randomized is it where at 38 weeks you're, yeah. You're open to induction. Yeah. Even if you don't get picked, you are open to induction. It's so fascinating, this, this, um, this trial. And I appreciate it coming out because it has us rethink everything and sort of dig deep into all these questions and have this show and talk about it. Like it, it has us talking about the impact and implications of an induction all over again. Right, right. Right. I will be very curious to have the very same discussion with you after the study comes out. Because oh. may yeah, maybe we'll have more information. Maybe some of these what ifs and how can, maybe this can all be cleared up. Yeah. And I certainly want to, I would love to have you back to talk about this and, and unpack what other, other information we get further along. But I did feel that it was important to bring this to the attention of new and expectant parents because it's out there. Right, right. And you know, another thing I'm just thinking, um, I would love somebody who has the kind of the computer skills or whatever's needed to do a model of how long inductions take using a good, safe, slow protocol. <clears throat> and, and sort of like, if we had 10 labor and delivery rooms and 80% of our people are being induced in 39 weeks and it takes so long to do an induction, like how many staff are involved? How long, do you, you know what I mean? I would love a model of what that might look like, look like in moving people through the system if this were applied. That might be something to ask of Dr. Neil Shaw and his team. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. right up his alley. <laughs> Shoot him an email. Let him know. <laughs> yeah. Sharon, was there anything else that you wanted to make sure we got to a good regarding this topic? No, I, I, I would love to hear from families if they're starting to hear their providers say, hey, you know, we kind of know it might make sense. To, you know, like, what's the word on the street now? Are, are people being told about this? Are they being suggested to be induced mm -hmm. at, at 39 weeks? I, I don't know. I haven't quite heard that yet. Uh, so I'd be very curious how this is, you know, because what are people basing their recommendations on if we don't really, ha nobody's changed their, their, no organizations have changed their recommendations yet. And, but you know, people, you know, it's a news flash and people are hot and hot, ready to strike on it. And, and so families, once again, uh, you know, it's just all, all the more important to demonstrate why it's important to have a good childbirth education class, why it's important to have a doula, why it's important to take time to, to ha you know, have a provider that listens to you and explains things in a way that you understand. And if it's not an emergency to say, I'd like to go home and think about it, you know, that to, 
know to, your options. You know your options, right? Because this could be big. Yeah. It is big. It is big. It is, and yeah. I and I am like you curious to know if it's just us that are, you know, birth people that like that work in the birth world that are up in a tizzy about it, or if it's actually reaching the street. Yeah. So if you're a parent out there listening right now, um, you know, who's facing this would love to hear from you that, yeah, my doctor is now bringing this up or my midwife is now bringing this up. Yeah. You can tell us, you can contact me at Birthful or you, where can they contact you? Uh, they can contact me at Sharon, at Sharon Muja, M-U-Z-A dot com, Sharon dot com. Perfect. And to know more about what you're doing and follow you also at Sharon dot com. Yes. Yeah. I'm, that's where I hang out. (laughs) (laughs) You hang out at a lot of places. You're a busy woman. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, schedule to talk with me today about this. It was lovely as always. It is. It's always a treat to talk to you. And I'm so appreciative of all you do to help unravel the mysteries, um, you know, to make people feel confident and have the information they need to make decisions that feel good to them. Mighty ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful, so come say hi. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Aura Organic and Casper. To best support this podcast, support its sponsors, and get discounts while you're at it. Use the code birthful at aura.organic to get 15% off your first order and go to casper.com slash birthful and use the code birthful to get $50 towards select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Also, the Birthful Podcast is part of the Parents on Demand Network. Find out more at parentsondemand.com. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.